Good evening. The clock says five o'clock, and it is five at five. So how about we jump right in? If you have your Bible, Revelation chapter seven, we're going to read the same passage we read from this morning. And what a joy it is to indeed have that moment and opportunity. Now, I will confess to you very shortly that we are going to have a shorter five at five today. Let me explain to you why. So the tech stuff that we have in the chapel here is connected to the tech stuff we have in the auditorium. And most notably, our tech people. And with the children's thing, we need them in both places. So we will abbreviate our moment tonight. But I don't think it'll be too disappointing, for we are taking up a topic of great interest to you. Let me read to you, starting in verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all the tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation! belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing, glory, honor, wisdom, power, and might belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders responded, saying to me, these are these who are clothed in white robes. Who are they? Where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will no longer hunger nor thirst, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any scorching heat for the lamb. In the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of the water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Join me in prayer, won't you? Oh, gracious Jesus, thank you that you are our great shepherd. My prayer tonight is that we would remember that with eagerness, enthusiasm, joy, and comfort. And that you would help us, Lord Jesus, to know that you have already won. Now as we take up these, these topics tonight, Father, let us do so with more than an eye toward information, but rather that you would call us to life transformation. Would you do that among us tonight, Jesus? Will you show your power here, not just in the five at five time, but across the hall in the auditorium in a few minutes? Would you use our children to call us to life transformation? Thank you, Lord that what you've given us is not just for Sunday, but the rest of the week too. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. All right, my friends. Now, we're going to start with the first question, which isn't really a question at all. It's sort of like last week, where we're going to say, talk about this. We're going to talk about the 70 weeks once more. Now, the 70 weeks, if you'll remember, it is in Daniel chapter 9. Gabriel, the angel, gives our friend Daniel a prophecy. He brings it to him and he says, we're going to have eventually 70 weeks. Now, let's just pause here for a moment and say, yes, we know this is true, but what exactly those 70 weeks mean, the Bible never lays out as clearly as we'd like. Thus, if you read very widely at all, you're going to find others who will disagree with what I've given you this morning and what I'm about to give you. It's okay. They can be wrong if they want to be. <laughs> That's a joke. That's a joke. But it is my summation and the a plurality of scholarship that gives us the information that I'm providing for you tonight. So I think you can rest easily in this section. If we take that each day represents a year, thus every week is equal to seven years, then the 70 weeks is 490 years in length. 490 years. If we break it up accordingly, then the first seven weeks, that is 49 years, is used to rebuild Jerusalem. Well, I didn't know it was broken, Darren. So go back to the time of Daniel, and you'll find Cyrus the Great. Cyrus was the one who allowed the children of Israel to go home. It took them about 50 years to put it back together. And this is where the Bible can be a little confusing, all right? When does that take place? Well, if you are reading through our reading plan, in about a month and a half, you'll get to the book of Nehemiah, and right after that, Ezra. They will follow the Kings and Chronicles books. But chronologically they should follow Daniel because they actually fall there. When Nehemiah is repairing the walls, it's in this first seven weeks. When Ezra is rebuilding the temple, it's in these first seven weeks. Let's rejoice then that God gave us the chance to rebuild Jerusalem. My friend Gary Farnham has been sending me information that he's found and gratefully received, let me just be clear with you, gratefully received about the, the, the turmoil that is going on in Israel right now. About once every 20 years, Ramadan and Passover fall together. And when they do, you can mark it down, there's going to be trouble. And that's what you're seeing this year. The good news is it won't happen again until 2044. Some of you are like, thank God I won't be here to see it. And that's all right. But for those of us who may be, then we will begin now to pray against its problem. Let's be clear. The city of Jerusalem is a special place. We all know that. 
We're just acknowledging it now. But the reason it's special isn't because of the buildings that are there. The reason it's special is because it represents something. It represents God's inheritance, and it is representative of where God intends to bring things back to yet again. We will rejoice that those first seven weeks were to rebuild Jerusalem. The second grouping of weeks, 62 weeks times seven years is 434 years. This is the time of the waiting for the Messiah. That's approximately the number of years from Daniel till Jesus. Now, some have made arguments that are mildly compelling to equate it from the exact day Daniel received this to the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. I'm not as swayed, if you will, by that because Daniel didn't notate what day he wrote it down and we don't know exactly what day Jesus came into the city. So we'll just say it's approximately that number of years and approximately in that time frame. The week we're most interested in is that 70th one. And that's the one where trouble comes. Can we just say that? Because the 70th week is the longest one of all. And it hasn't even started yet. The 70th week is the one we've been in since Jesus. We don't know exactly when the seven-year part starts, but we know that we're in that waiting period and have been since the time of Christ. It's a seven-year period between when the Antichrist arises and when Christ brings a, a culmination to the Antichrist at the Battle of Armageddon. The Antichrist's rise will be one that is wildly popular. We'll get to this in August. Uh, the Antichrist's rise will be one that is very popular. He will be a populist leader. Somebody that people would get excited about and energized by and say, this is the kind of leader we want. We just won't know everything there is to know about him until three and a half years later. We'll circle back to that another time. Let's be clear. The beginning of the tribulation will be blissful. The Antichrist will usher in three and a half years worth of peace. The final three and a half years. That, friends, will be utter chaos as the Antichrist is fully revealed and the persecution sweeps over the church. Well, how do I understand it? Well, here's where we'll probably part company. And some of you will divide yourselves into camps because now we talk about what some of you came for. How you view the rapture, hereafter called by its biblical name, the parousia, determines what you believe next. Let's pause here and be reminded of what we said a week or two ago. There are some things that are eternal and that we can disagree about on fundamental grounds because Scripture is clear. There are other things that are not eternal that Scripture is not explicit on that we can give each other grace. The return of Christ as a fact falls into the former. It is eternal. We know Christ is coming. 
The timing of his coming falls into the latter. We don't know when he's coming. We don't know the circumstances of his arrival. We don't know exactly what his plan is for when he arrives. That's why you have all of these different conversations going in the background, especially about the book of Revelation. If you were to come to my office, I would show you a book entitled The Meaning of the Millennium. And it is a conversation that delves into this very question. How do we understand the return of Christ? I'm going to present to you three views of the parousia. Parousia. Well, let's start at the beginning, shall we? The word rapture never appears in the pages of the Bible. Instead, we find the term parousia, meaning coming or arrival. The first time I had this talk with some of, of, of my church members at another location, I nearly incited a riot because what they thought I said was that the rapture is not in the Bible. No, the word rapture is not in the Bible. So where does it come from? A translation from Greek into Latin of the word parousia. They translated it rapturo, which means coming. Thus, the word rapture took hold. We find the idea and the term parousia used consistently by Jesus and the apostles, Matthew 24, Philippians 2, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, most especially 1st Thessalonians 4, 1st Corinthians 15, the resurrection passage, 1st and 2nd Peter, particularly 2nd Peter 3. Curiously, however, we don't find the term at all in Revelation. Most of these passages are anchored in the expectant return of Christ. From these passages, we shape and form our doctrine of the return of Christ. What do I mean by that? So I, I know some people who are sculptors, and this was what they tell me about sculpting. They start with a wire frame. Chicken wire frame is how they describe it to me. It's structured to similarly reflect what it is that they want to make, but it has no features whatsoever. And they take the clay that they intend to make this sculpture out of, and they smack it onto the chicken wire. Now, if you're a sculptor and you're listening to this on a later broadcast, please don't be offended. I'm sure there's a better name than chicken wire. But the idea is the same. You put it on there, and it's there to hold it in place, right? The structure then begins to take shape. As the sculptor moves his hands over it, he has to make artistic choices because maybe there's not a clear and identifiable direction for every single choice. Let us rejoice that although we will make choices based on our understanding, those choices are not necessarily eternal. Here's what I mean. The doctrine of the return of Christ centers around one fact, and I want you to rejoice with me. Jesus is coming back. We got that much cleared up. Jesus is coming back, and when he does, it's all going to be over. We won't have to worry about this nonsense anymore. We can set it all aside. 
I've known some well-meaning, loving, godly people who disagreed with each other, with each other vehemently about how the Christ would return and the circumstances of his return. <laughs> uh, one wiser, older professor looked at both of them and said, I'll see you guys in the air and we'll settle it there. In other words, when Jesus comes back, that won't matter a lick what our opinion about it is. Thus, the next portion of our conversation that we will move through, these are schools of interpretation on the return of Christ. I don't want you to take any one of them and say, yes, the word of God must fit my understanding and everything has to funnel through here. It's a mistake. That's a Western thinking that we must nail it down and have it absolutely definitively defined. I'm sorry, friends, that kind of clarity just isn't possible with something that Jesus didn't make clear. We will give it our best effort, and we will make clear that we present these three schools of thought to you, and then you can choose one and take it home as a pet, all right? I mean that only half-joking, because the, the final one of these three is the most popular, and I've stacked it that way on purpose, because when you see it, you'll go, yeah, that's the one I've been taught all, all of my life. I'm doing it this way because I want you to have the perspective that is broader. Remember, that's the idea behind five at five, a deeper dive, right? So let's talk about the three schools. Well, oh, wait a minute, I had one more slide. Uh, Jesus said it clearly in Matthew 24. No one knows the day or the hour. Anchor your heart there, would you? Jesus himself said that. What did Jesus say we should do about it then? In Matthew 24, 44, he said, Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you don't expect. King James, it says, The Son of Man is coming in an hour when you think not. One of my professors vehemently believed that was to an 8 o'clock a.m. class in biblical Hebrew. Perhaps he's right. I'm not sure. Now let's take up these three views, and we'll start with the one that is on our first part of the list. Mid-tribulation, return of Christ, also known as the pre-wrath version of this view. It means that the church will be present for and go halfway through the tribulation. At the three and a half year mark, just when things turn from blissful peace until to utter chaos, the church is raptured out. That's the moment of Christ's return. That's when he'll come to get his church, and thus they'll be absent for the final wrathful section of the tribulation. There are three pieces to this that support it. One, in Matthew 24, it seems the church is present for the tribulation when you read the words of Jesus. When Jesus speaks to the elect, he doesn't seem to be speaking of the Jews in that passage, but rather a larger group. Thus, it seems that the church will be present for at least a portion of the tribulation. 
A second argument in favor of the mid-tribulation view. The seal judgments in chapter 6 and the trumpet judgments in chapter 8 are not divine judgments, but rather natural ones. The seventh seal, however, opens the beginning of the outpouring of God's wrath. The seventh trumpet of Revelation 11 is linked with the trumpets of Matthew 24, of 1 Thessalonians 4, and the final trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15. Thus, it's a natural thing to understand that these pieces come together at the midpoint of the tribulation, not the beginning and not the end. Third, finally, Jesus' statement in Matthew 24, verse 29. After the tribulation of those days, it's taken to indicate a shift from the natural forms of the tribulation in the first half to a more divine judgment in the second. Since God's wrath is not for the church, so says Romans 5, 9, since the wrath of God has been already paid for by the blood and body of Jesus Christ, God will remove the church from the earth prior to the outpouring of his wrath. Thus, the mid-tribulation view. Now, let's move to the second one, the post-tribulation view. It declares the church will go through the tribulation rather than being raptured out. Thus, the rapture of the church and the resurrection of all the saints, all the dead saints, occurs at the same time, at the end of the seven-year period. This unitary event puts together two separate things that other views hold, the coming for the saints in 1 Thessalonians 4 and the immediate coming with the saints in Revelation 19. This view tries to put those two elements together. There are four pieces that support this view. One, the church is never told that it will escape the tribulation. In fact, the word tribulation is used 55 times in the New Testament. Of those, 47 relate to the tribulation that we're talking about here. Second, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 describes the church as meeting the Lord in the air, but doesn't say the Lord takes the church on to heaven. It could be that he brings them right back to the earth for a continued journey. Third, Revelation, throughout Revelation 6 to 18, the primary pieces of the tribulation and the, the wrath experience, the people of God are present, specifically the church. There's no reason to exclude the church from the tribulation passages. And finally, 2 Thessalonians 2 describes believers who thought they were enduring the day of the Lord. If they believed in a pre-tribulation view, we'll talk about that in a minute, they wouldn't have believed that because the Antichrist hadn't come. Paul tells his readers their current persecution is not the day of the Lord. You put these pieces together and you see the underpinning of the post-tribulation view. But that's not the one that is most popular 
The one we've saved for last is the pre-tribulation view. And I see I've got it number two. You'll correct that on your notes. Editorial mistake. Undoubtedly, this is the most popular view, especially in the United States. It is linked to the dispensational school of theology and a premillennial view of how the church is to be dealt with at the end. It is popularized most recently by the Left Behind series of books and Tim LaHaye's work, The Late Great Planet Earth. We find it first really catching wind with the Schofield Reference Bible. With all due respect to the fine work that Schofield Reference Bible represents, let us bear in mind there is a line in study Bible pages, a line that separates the top half of the page that is Scripture from the bottom half of the page that is interpretation. Make sure you observe that line because it may or may not be as factual as what is above. This is what it means to call yourself a pre-tribulationist. The church is raptured just prior to the seven-year tribulation period, and therefore they miss the tribulation altogether. That means that the return of Christ is in two stages. One is the rapture. We see that in 1 Thessalonians 4. And two is the second coming. We find that in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. Therefore, the purpose of the tribulation is twofold. One, to conclude the time of the Gentiles. That's what Luke 21 seems to say. And two, to save the Jewish people and prepare for the restoration of Israel and the millennial kingdom. Let us pause here and say, for this tribulation, pre-tribulation view to be correct, there are three resurrections that are required, not just two. One, the resurrection of the righteous dead to meet the Lord in the air prior to the tribulation. That's in 1 Thessalonians 4. Two, the resurrection of the martyred saints who died during the tribulation, Revelation 20. And three, the resurrection of all unbelievers at the end of the millennium. Revelation 20, verse 5. These pieces are necessary for this view of the tribulation and Jesus' return to be accurate. There are two main judgments that are listed if you take this view. One, the judgment of believers taking place at the seat of Christ, Revelation 7, 19, 7 through 9. And two, the great white throne judgment of all the unsaved at the end of the millennium. Now, let's talk about support of this view. Those who would support it say God doesn't intend for his church to undergo his wrath. Thus, he plans to remove them before his wrath is fully revealed. Two, the early judgments are more than just natural judgments. They're the first fruits of God's wrath. And three, 
we're told throughout Scripture to be constantly ready. The, this readiness only makes sense if there's nothing needing fulfillment between now and Christ's return. Now, the question you're going to ask me, I'll just cut you off now. The question you're going to ask me is, Darren, which one of these do you hold? Well, to be honest with you, none of them, dogmatically. I can support any of the three. If you were to put me into a chokehold, and I hope you won't, if you were to put me into a chokehold and say, Darren, you must choose one, then I would probably choose the mid-tribulationist view. Here's why. While we as Westerners have had the luxury of being free from a lot of the persecution that happens in other places, the tribulation is already evident in places like Ethiopia. How can they take a pre-tribulation view where there is no tribulation if they're already experiencing it now? That said, a great many of you, including my mother, have a David Jeremiah study Bible. A great respect for Dr. Jeremiah. He supports the final view, teaches it, if you listen to his broadcast, if you read his books, you'll find it there. I'm not about to say Dr. Jeremiah is wrong. So which one should you take? I'm opting for a fourth one. The pan-tribulationist view. God's going to pan it out at the end, <laughs> and we don't have to try to figure it out. We can just release it to the hands and mercy of Christ and say, Jesus, you come when you're ready. We'll be ready for you when you get here. Friends, that is the most logical for me view to embrace. I was much more dogmatic when I was younger. I guess age has a way of softening some of your edges and helping you see that there's not just one way. So when you take this home with you and you are investigating it further, and I hope you will, then understand that for many of us, this is not a hill that we're willing to die on. We simply acknowledge these views exist and embrace them lightly, on my end at least, with a humility that says only God knows. And in his good time, he'll make it clear to all of us. All right, my friends, I bet you have a question or two. We've got about five or ten minutes, so we will embrace that. Hi, how are you? We'll start with the most eager beaver. Jim believes that temple worship will have to start again. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I left that portion out, but that's a, a view of the pre-tribulationist view. Okay. Israel... Israel has a very specific and special place. The temple must be rebuilt. Uh, you may remember a few years ago, um, there was a great hubbub. Uh, no, it's more than a few, probably like 20. Um, where some well-meaning and well-intentioned dispensational believers took a cornerstone to Temple Mount in Jerusalem 
intending to lay it on Temple Mount and put it right where the temple needed to stand. The problem with that, if we're going to take a literal interpretation of what we do know about Herod's temple and about Solomon's temple, it cannot be built without taking down Alaska Mosque, the Dome of the Rock. Hmm. I don't see that happening right now. So, yes, that's a portion of that view as well. Thanks. Yes, ma'am. All right, someone else? Is there any indication in the Bible of what might happen to children under the age of accountability? You know, we've, we've uh, sort of invented that term and uh, adopted it, and I think rightfully so. Uh, but the Bible actually never speaks to it. Uh, we, we have, uh, in some cases, generously read that portion uh, because I don't know that the Bible talks about uh, children and their developmental capacity the way we'd like. We'd like a little more detail. Uh, if you're asking me, yes, I believe there's a special place in heaven for those who have not reached an age of developmental readiness to arrive at a point where they recognize their sin and their need for a savior. All right, anybody else? Gosh, I thought there'd be a lot more energy for this one. Hey, Jen. I had a question from what you read this morning um, yes. that you were teaching where it says the, um, I don't remember how the people were labeled, but that they washed their own clothes in the blood of Jesus to make them clean. And I thought it was kind of unusual because salvation is something like we have no role other than receiving. Sure. Do you, like, is there anything to that? So uh, from Revelation 7, if you want to go back there with me, um, this is, I believe, the only time we find this reflected exactly like this. But let me read it to you one more time. Uh, these are the ones who have come out of the Great Tribulation, They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Um, how can you make something white by washing it in blood? That's a good question. What role did they have in their own salvation? It doesn't seem that they did. It seems rather metaphorical uh, that their garments, if you will, uh, have been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. As such, they have washed robes in the blood of Christ and come out white. The symbolism of white is obvious, purity, holiness, uniqueness in Christ's eyes. But that is a robe that covers us, bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. Does that help you, uh, help, help my case a little more? Yes, but, it, but the part where it says that they washed, like, that it was, you know what I mean? We don't think of that. Like, we know that we're... Sure. It, it is, almost as if we have a, a participatory aspect in our own salvation. Uh, and this is one of those times I'm not sure what to make of it, but I'll say this. I think our response, our faith response to Christ is that, where we're responding to Christ and thus our robes are washed. 
not because we bought our salvation or did something to gain it. Rather, we responded to the invitation Christ gave us, and thus we are washed in the blood of Christ. That's a great song. Maybe we should sing that before we go, washed in the blood. Uh, but in all sincerity, I think what, what, the, uh, what, what the angel is saying, them, saying there is that the, uh, the blood of Christ is what gives them the privilege of wearing the right robes in the first place, and that they were washed clean, um, not necessarily by their action, but through Christ's action on their behalf and their participation in it. All right, got time for one more. My husband's gonna kick me later. <laughs> what? Okay, so I know you accept Jesus as your Savior. I know, you know, I'm in the Word and Bible, but we're all sinners. Sure. What do you mean, like, be ready? Do you get on your knees every night and just ask for forgiveness for your fleshliness? I mean, like, can you elaborate on, like, I think I'm ready, but then I, sometimes I think I'm unworthy, and sure. it's just so back and forth, like, okay, today I'm unworthy. Is he coming today? Okay, tomorrow I feel... I, th I think... What, what I mean by that, and I won't put words in Jesus' mouth, but what, what I think Jesus meant is living apart from active and open sin. If you are engaged in active and open sin, and oh, there's no worry because Christ hasn't come back yet, and it's going to be a long time till he does, that exhibits a foolishness that is arrogant. And when Christ does return, there will be many who will be caught surprised. And they'll be like, oh, wait, give me time to fix it. Well, it's too late to fix it. Um, the moment for fixing was before, and now it's too late. I can assure you of that. There will be many who will say, but Jesus, give me another 10 minutes and I'll be ready. No such moment exists when the trumpets sound. So the idea of preparing well calls me to a state of vigilance. It isn't a a state of, okay, have I read my Bible today? Have I prayed enough? I think that's wrongly interpreting it. I think those are important. Don't misunderstand me. But I think the key part is let's make sure that we're not living in open and wanton sin and letting that define our days to such a point that we disregard Christ's return altogether. Uh, Jesus wants us to be ready for his return at a moment's notice. In other words, live as if he would catch us doing whatever it is that we're doing at that moment. Well, now you can always shame yourself with that. And that's why I didn't say it this morning. Uh, because it's always easy to say, oh gosh, what I did today, it was, I'd, be, I'd be so sick if Jesus can't, caught me doing that. Yes, all of us will make mistakes that we'll look back and say, that was dumb. However, that's not what I think Jesus is talking about. I think what he's talking about is living in such a state that says, I'm ready for Christ's return. I've made my peace with Christ. I've been redeemed and I'm washed in his blood. Even if I make a mistake, I'm not living in uh, willful and open sin. Hope that helps. Hey, let me pray for you, my friends, and then let me encourage you. Just walk right across the hall for a real blessing from our children. Let's pray. Gracious Jesus, we thank you so much. Your word, even if we don't understand it, if we don't understand it all, 
and we can confidently say you do, and you're the one who has to fulfill it. So now, Jesus, as we go from here, let us rejoice that your return is indeed imminent. Just around the corner, so we can rest easy. We can rest confidently, and we can know, Jesus, that you have us well under your care. Not just now, but for eternity forward. Lord, we commit this week ahead to you, and we ask, Father, your blessings over it. We pray for rain, and that you would send it our way. I keep seeing it on the weather forecast. Would you bring it to us, Lord? And I pray, God, that you would use our lives as a refreshing rain on those around us because of the grace and mercy that you've given us to share. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.